Welcome to the nature of money. I am so glad you're here. The journey for the show started a long time ago, back when I was the co-founding CEO of an organic chocolate company called Nibmore. Well, actually, it started a long time before that. There's a particular moment that sticks out in my mind right now. I was in Nice, France, and I was leading a sizable global funding project with a pharmaceutical company, and I was directing their team of scientists and business development group and company executives. I was guiding them through the pivotal steps of this project. And outwardly at that time in my life, I was very successful, quote unquote. But inside, I was sad and lonely and overwhelmed by the emptiness that I found in my quote unquote success. And so here I am walking down this quaint cobbled street on a cool late kind of early evening in Nice, France. And I felt a pang of sadness in my gut. It felt like I was being crushed by boulders. It was so overwhelming. And the loneliness seemed to steal my breath away. And the ironic part was that I was scheduled to get married a couple weeks later. But I felt as though I had no one to share what was happening for me. And so outwardly, this project was a moment of triumph. And yet I couldn't seem to really enjoy any of it. Inside, I was just feeling empty. I found myself feeling empty and, and examining all the ways I wasn't good enough through the experience. I couldn't muster any sense of feeling accomplished or like I was doing anything great in this work. And yet the work was incredibly successful. It was funded. The work for me really was a distraction from emotional pain. And I'm going to talk a lot more about that through this season and the episodes. And so there I was walking down the street in Nice and I was yearning and longing to feel whole and to feel alive and to feel good. And I remember thinking, I don't want to go home. I don't want to get married. I don't want to live like this in my life anymore. And that was the moment I knew I had to change. My journey into Nibmore chocolate and into the food industry was a way for me to start healing that feeling of loneliness and emptiness and overwhelm. And as I continued to advise more and more leaders, the growing realization became like, this is a common issue, dare I say, an epidemic amongst leaders. I mean, have you ever worked to the point of exhaustion and never felt like you're good enough even or have you struggled with eating or weight or food in some way? Have you wrestled with feeling of I'm not good enough or I don't deserve this level of success that I have? I became really intrigued by what made leaders, especially female founders, tick. Now, I've been doing business and strategy and advising for a long time. But what I uncovered in my work with leaders is that all of the strategy in the world didn't really matter if they didn't work because it wouldn't work. And so what made them tick? What were the true obstacles that they faced and how many of these were self-imposed? I wondered. And this led me into my study of what I call money psychology 
and into the work with leaders as a money therapist. And now here I am for this first episode of The Nature of Money to share my own story and how I was being with money in a way that had a lot more to do with containing pain than actually creating value for others. And I've named the show The Nature of Money because I believe with the bottom of my heart that nature has so much to teach us about wealth, about money, and about living wealthy. And nature's simple principles are the most fundamental lessons of which we have forgotten. And so getting back to nature, I believe, is the key to helping us as leaders and entrepreneurs shift how we're being with money and wealth to something that is more organic and natural and part of a thriving ecosystem rather than making it mean something scary and hard and obtainable only through something outside of ourselves. And while this show is for all leaders, I've made a special emphasis on the female founder. As more and more money enters the hands of women and as more and more women are becoming the breadwinners and as more and more women are stepping into leadership roles and starting or running businesses, I find that there's a special conversation that needs to be had for you ladies, for us, for all of us. You are the creator of life. You are more than enough. Your way of leadership is welcome here, and you can flourish that wealth zone into a flourishing garden to live truly wealthy from the inside out. It requires healthy wealth stewardship, and nature really shows us the way in that process. And it felt natural for me with this show and this first two episodes to invite my sweetheart, John, who's been a supporter, a champion, a container holder, as I've continued to do my own expansion and growth in this work, in my relationship with money, to have a conversation together, to share and reveal more of my story with you. And I'll continue to do that over the seasons. But uh, John is a special human. He's someone I cherish that I love deeply, and he's an incredibly talented musician and songwriter and all around just great guy. And so I'm excited for him to be here with me today. Well, (laughs) we finally got here. We did. We did it. Whoa. Well, we haven't done it yet, but we're doing it. That's for sure. (laughs) Let's see how it goes. (laughs) Maybe we can make it like one of our good evening conversations. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. For for those who are are listening and don't know what that is, well, it's this kind of special thing that John and I do. We have what we call our good morning or good afternoon or good evening conversation. And so this is an evening and we are, we're wanting to just bring you into the spirit of kind of how we are and who we are as I tell my story and yeah. Seriously. Yeah. 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 Well, mm-hmm. yeah. well where to, where to begin to begin mm-hmm. at the beginning. Very beginning. Very first place to start. Is that sound of music? It is. <laughs> okay. It is. It's like, where's it's like, Julie Andrews when you need it? 
<laughs> the very first yeah all-time all-time favorite classic movie yeah totally. used to watch that used to watch that a lot uh as a child growing up yeah maybe that's a great place to start do re mi yeah. fa so la ti do exactly <laughs> how the the power of narrative through storytelling, right? Just really impacts us as humans. It's been a, it's been a, I mean, this is like ancient, um, how we communicate, how we relate, how we interact and what we believe, how we're holding the world, how we see even space. Um, at once we believed that the world was flat (laughs) And, and now we know it's not. And, and so to me, that's part of the power of narrative, isn't it? It's, it really creates so much of what we hold as true as what we believe is real or not real. Yeah. And that's a pretty, uh, it takes a little bit to kind of really get in there and and kind of unpack how our story is kind of, uh, uh, living us, so to speak, rather than us just living out, you know, this kind of moment to moment thing where we're like, well, I'm just living, but the story of our life and what's happened before, you know, this present moment obviously has an impact and, and getting in there and, and looking at those, those parts and pieces can be super, uh, I don't know. I mean, it can wake us up. It can be kind of scary. It can do all kinds of things, but I think it seems pretty important, especially, especially now. Why know, now? Today. Well, just in today where we're just, we're confronted with so many different things, you know, I mean, all of a sudden we're so inundated with so much stuff and we're so influenced in ways that we don't even know and see. So being able to slow down, I think, Mm. and really, you know, really take a breath into our own, you know, uh, our own journey and really see where are the stories that have played a part in our lives and, and to how they're still continuing to play a part in our lives, whether it's, you know, consciously or, or obviously deeply unconsciously sometimes. Like and I'm a, the things that we can't see or the things that we believe that aren't necessarily true, but we're holding it as truth. And therefore then it limits us from what's actually true and what's therefore actually really possible hmm. in our life. Like, Oh, actually being able to wait a minute. The world is round. What do you mean the world is round? That opens up a whole bunch of new possibilities for me. What do you mean? What? (laughs) (laughs) And, 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 and that's, you know, when it comes to our own life, our own narrative and relationship about money or wealth, when we're holding things in a certain way, that there's only a certain amount of possibilities in that space, especially when it's not true. Yeah. Well, that's that's a pretty, yeah. And I think money, you know, you know, just calling it money or money and wealth, but certainly just the idea of having money versus not having money, you know, everybody's, you know, we hear the stories of those who have, you know, kind of started from nothing. That's the great American dream story, you know, pull your bootstraps up, start from nothing, work hard. You can, you can have what, you know, you put your mind to, you know, what you set goals for. And then for other people, you know, they're looking at that and saying, well, wait a minute, that why does that person, you know, have so much and other people have so little, they're still working hard. And so there's obviously some mm-hmm. great disparity in, 
the equanimity of how money, you know, works in our lives and how, you know, we got to either understand the value of it and how to get it and, you know, how to use it and, 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 you know, how to, you know, be with it, be in relationship with it. Which, I, I actually find myself saying, I see money as like this quiet, quietness of, you know, energy that's just floating around in space. And really it just ends up kind of like eggplant taking on whatever flavor <laughs> we put with it. <laughs> tofu, and you mean eggplant tofu, tofu. <laughs> eggplant, you know, it just takes on the flavor of whatever you add in the dish. Right. And oh it's just kind gosh. of, yeah, that's kind of how I see money. It's just kind of hanging out in this quiet void of nothingness until we actually put it with something that we're making it mean. We ascribe something to it, huh? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so, whatever flavor that is. So wouldn't it be nice to be able to start ascribing it in a way that is like what we hope, a regenerative, not something that we feel like we're having to hold on to for fear of not having it, right? Which, of course, is a major issue that many it, of us it, have it is. and go through, you know, at one point or another. Lots of it's either it's either not having it, John, or it's afraid because lots of people um, grow into wealth, you know, they or accumulate wealth, or or maybe they're born into wealth, mm-hmm. um, and they or they inherit wealth, right? And so for them, it's not about the acquiring it; it it's often just about the keeping it, the deep fear of losing it, and therefore wanting to protect it. And uh, I find that the energy on both sides, it seems like it would would be different having it versus not having it seems like it would be like very different in terms of how it sits inside someone. And the, the linear thought might be different that there's a distinction there for sure. But in terms of emotionally, how that runs in people, often I see that it's still very much scarcity. It's still very much fear driven. It's still, it's still the same kind of, emotionality underneath it and we've got the the, yeah it does and then we've got the folks in between who like are on a freaking roller coaster ride with money all the time it's like in and out in and out in in and out i can make it then i lose it then i can make it and i can lose it (laughs) and and i get that you know i've been there too uh so i understand so many of us experience some version of this relationship with money in, in, in a sense of fear of having it or not having it or losing it or, or whatever, like most of us in our lifetime will experience that in some way, shape or form, whatever flavor that takes on your early experiences around uh, how money has had an impact on your life. I mean, it started kind of early for for you, right? As far as what I I know about your story, why don't you, you know, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this is a story that, you know, much like a lot of my clients when I work with them, it's, they have a hard time accessing right away. It's hard to sometimes go back and remember some of the early, early memories. Um, I have a lot of early childhood memories. One of my very first early memories and certainly my money memory. Um, I was three years old and we were living in Oklahoma City um, in a pretty nice home. My father was an entrepreneur, owned a business. And, um, this particular day, my brother went in his bedroom, taking a nap and I was standing in the hallway. It was kind of a long hallway that led down to my parents' bedroom at the very end and their door was shut and I could hear them fighting. Um, and quite loudly, I could hear my father actually punching holes in the walls. 
Um, he was so angry. I'm not sure to this day about what exactly. Uh, but he went storming out of the room and walked past me down the hallway and left. And I turned and I was looking at my mom and she was sitting on the bed and she was crying. And so I went to her and I crawled up on the bed and sitting next to her were a bunch of cut up credit cards. And she looked at me, this little three-year-old me and said, your dad's leaving. He's not coming back and we don't have any money. And um, that was a really interesting day for me. That's a bomb. Yeah. That was that was a uh, big old bomb. That's a, that's a nuclear atomic bomb on a three-year-old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little too much information, mom. <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, could have could have filtered that a little bit better, mom. But whatever, it's already out now. Yeah, um, and it had a big impact on me. Yeah. It. I mean, as of as of course it did. Um, and you know, part of the part of me, this very sweet, very part of me wanted to help her, you know, so I can remember even at that young age, I, I was almost stepping into this hero role. Like I'm going to save mom. I'm going to figure, I'm going to make her happy, right? I'm going to make her happy. So I'm not going to even, I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to speak up. I'm not going to do a bunch of stuff. So mom can be happy. And so that it's easier for mom because she's got it really rough. And yeah, because I mean, as a kid, you, you, you're not really thinking about it for yourself. You're three, but you see that your mother is devastated, suffering, yeah. suffering. So you're like, all right, the best I can do is I'm going to help her just okay. feel better. You know, try not to be sad or upset. We get that when we're kids, we totally have a sense of that. This other part of what was happening for me too, that was, well, gosh, you know, my father left and therefore I'm not really lovable is how that story kind of went down. And then even more loudly was, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough for him to stay. I'm not good enough for him to want to be in my life. Yeah. I can see how that, I mean, I'm kind of looking back and I can see how that kind of played out. But I can also, in looking back at the three-year-old, I can see that I went through some great, like part of the grief cycle early. Huh. You know, there was a there was a bit of denial that I was having about um, my father leaving and not being a part of our life. Um, denial meaning you didn't believe that he wasn't going to not come back. I didn't. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to believe it. I wasn't really accepting yeah. it as true. And it, well, that played out in some not so great ways later. Looking back now that I was a, I was a grieving child. As a side note, this is the same exact grief that I mentioned when I was in Nice, France earlier in this conversation, I was still carrying this grief almost three decades later, but I didn't know it then walking those cobbled streets in Nice, that I was carrying all this unprocessed grief. Even though I felt it, even though it was really impacting me, I wasn't relating it back then to this three-year-old me that had all of this pain and all of this grief and sadness inside of her. I was grieving for lots of reasons. Um, I, I do remember when we moved to California from Oklahoma. You know, uh-huh. we kind of moved with my grandparents. Oh, I see. For, that's a, for a that's while. 
that's a line of demarcation. So it was speak. a line of demarcation. And then, you know, we lived in the rat house. We lived in the ant house. You know, we kind of went from being rich to being in poverty, really, for a good mm-hmm. while. And, uh, you know, no child support was coming in. So there were, my grandparents were kind of stepping up. His parents, my father's parents, did step up and pay for private school. Um, so I did go to private school, you know, have that handled essentially through an extension of him. Um, and I'm not trying to like bash my father. You know, he, I've given him a pass at this point um, through all of the work that I've had to do to get through my own narrative around uh, I wasn't lovable enough or I'm not good enough. Right. I've had, and we'll talk about that. I think we should talk about that. I'd like to, uh, but you know, I just want to call out to him for a moment. He's not some evil person. Um, you know, he just was not really meant. His role wasn't meant to be my father. Mm-hmm. His role was to be a portal to help me get into this life. And it was how I was running the narrative about him that got me all twisted up and created some funky stuff in relationship with money for me. And kind of circling back to that. Because the I'm not good enough narrative and how that ran in me was, (laughs) oh, honey, (laughs) I'm laughing because I really was trying to overcompensate through massive external achievement to try to prove that I was good enough. And so that ended up like, you know, if I think back to high school, um, you know, I was getting top grades and I was in the flag team and I was taking piano lessons. I was doing voice lessons and martial arts and I won an art competition and I won a competition at Universal Studios with my high school's top choir. And I led my band, you know, in high school, like front and center down the Rose Parade and on and on and on and on and on, you know, it went because... I think one, I was trying to avoid the pain and I didn't really have the proper support on how to deal with dad's no longer here. Life is hard. Mom's in a car accident and, you know, kind of checking out in a certain way because she's in, she's in so much physical and emotional pain and she doesn't know how to deal with all of that um, herself. And so part of it was me checking out an avoidance mm-hmm. strategy. It was a very good one. And by, by good, I mean, like it was effective, not necessarily healthy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of it was also the, I'm not good enough. So I'm going to try to prove myself and my worthiness in this life, in this world. Not having father around and having a mother that was kind of, you know, damaged and hurt in certain very uh, of course she was. Ways. Yeah. yeah. And she has her own, you know, childhood trauma and processed yeah. as well. So yeah, like I totally have so much compassion. I really do for my mother and, and her life experiences and not being able to get through. So, um, and yet, you know, I was impacted by all of it. Sure. Um, it actually takes an incredible amount of energy to not process our emotionality. <laughs> right, uh, interesting. And, 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's actually more work to repress <laughs> mm -hmm. than to not, right? So I've been studying this stuff for a really long time. And this is the work that I'm doing is, is looking at how we are repressing our emotionality um, and how that expresses itself and how that plays in our relationship with how we're you know, being with money, how we're making it, how we're, you know, growing it, how we're protecting it, how we're giving it and being generous with it, um, or how we're really, how we're living wealthy, which has so much less to do with money and so much more to do with our inner state of beingness. More of a soulful kind of way of trying to live life in a balanced kind of way. Yeah. 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 Having money and growing assets and a legacy through how we even want to contribute and, and leave things behind. Um, that's part of living wealthy, but it's only a part of it. There's so much more to our humanness, to our existence, to our richness. Money is just the representation of the tool, just like any other tool would be. But we give it so much energy because why? Because we're making it mean something about who we are hmm. as, a, as a person. Our good or good enoughness or not enoughness or too muchness. Not so much just edgy, but I think it's super important that we're having the conversation around it. Even if it sounds duh, it's like, well, we're still not really getting it. You know what I mean? That's there's exactly still so, right. We're, there's still so much disparity, so much suffering. So That's much, exactly right. You know, in inequality and 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 whatnot, and somehow we're all just pointing the finger at somebody else. You know, and it's hard because we don't know how to be able to take responsibility and then then of course be of service to others at the same time because it's it's hard what happened for you along the way like clearly you had this going through high school and even into college and whatnot so what you know talk about talk about how you started to grok that for yourself sure well by the time I was 29 years old, I had a master's degree in human and organizational behavior and development and was running a mortgage bank with over 100 employees. And then into my early 30s, I was an award-winning co-founding CEO of a wholesale chocolate company like that, you know, where we had landed accounts like Virgin Airlines and Whole Foods. And yet, kind of in theory, all of that sounds great. In practical application, outwardly, anyone looking at me would say, gosh, she looks like she's like really got it all together and she's really successful. Hmm. Except on the inside, I was really a hot mess because I mean, really all through my twenties, I wasn't sleeping two nights a week and drinking two pots of coffee a day just so I could keep up with it all. And so I had turned into and become a, a workaholic um, and I had become addicted to working. Mm. Um, it became a drug literally for me, mm. a drug of a, a drug that numbed me out. Um, and so the more accolades or the more, you know, 
money, the more whatever was like, you know, the hit that the was gold, the gold stars. Yeah. And it was giving me that high that I needed to then get to the next high, you know, that I needed to keep me going to feel some sense of like, I'm enough. But the problem was that I never was, I never got there. Like there's, like a, there's like a hole in the cup as, as you're filling it up. It's like, it's like draining out the back, the backside. Yeah. And you're like, what's going on here? Why is my cup not getting filled up? Yeah, exactly. And so I was miserable and suffering inside. And I got to this place where I really felt emotionally bankrupt. Um, and I think I really recognize that. So all through my 20s as well, I was bulimic. And you and I have talked a lot about this. Um, I've been public about it. Mm. But there was this one particular day that I think it really all came to a head for me. And I was in New York um, in my home, this big, beautiful home that I had purchased all for myself. But I was standing there in my bathroom. I had just binged and I was purging over the sink. And in my head, I could just hear myself lashing myself, beating myself um, with my words and being incredibly cruel. And there was this moment where I heard my higher self ask me, hey, if this were your best friend right now, would you be this cruel to her? And I was like, no. <laughs> and then my higher self asked me, well, what would you be doing? And I heard myself say, I'd be holding her hair, rubbing her back, telling her that I loved her, that I'm here for her, and that we can get her help, and that tomorrow will be a better day. And that was a life-changing moment for me. Because it was the day that I began to understand that it was okay to be me just as I was in all of the messiness and everything, all, all the stuff that was going on for me. So I was, what, I believe 30 years old, 30, 31. And, and it was the day that I began to become my own best friend and accept that my emotions and what I was having was okay. Now there's a lot more to my, you know, <laughs> history, which I'm sure in future seasons we'll unpack some of that. Um, but to answer the question of, you know, where did it really start to turn around for me? It was, when I was binging and purging in a, my bathroom sink and I realized, Hey, I need to access some more compassion for myself. And how about you try on being your own best friend? And it was a recipe that really worked for me. That's uh that sounds like a pretty, uh, pretty uh, divine kind of intervention, so to speak. I mean, you know, you're in the midst of something that is giving you safety and security at some level. That's why you're doing this you know, binging, purging kind of thing, right? It's like, somehow it's like a control mechanism, right? So well, it was, it was, I, it was a form of me 
trying to self-soothe. It wasn't right. a health. It wasn't. It wasn't a healthy version of self-soothing. Neither is cutting or you know any other kind of addiction um, or you know kind of behavior like that. But really, ultimately, underneath that, under underneath the unhealthy, harmful behavior, is really a person who's trying to self-soothe and love Mm -hmm. themselves and they just don't have the support or the access in themselves or the tools. They don't have the right tools in the toolbox. And I didn't, I didn't have the right tools in the toolbox. I didn't have this. I didn't have the support around me at the time to, to help me work through that. And, uh, but when I began to really unpack what was happening, because it took me a while to, you know, I, I, I was continuing to binge and purge after that day, but what I was beginning to change was how I was relating with myself about it and how I was talking to myself. So I began to do some inquiry. Hmm. Why am I doing this? Hmm. What's happening for me underneath that? And it was kind of like dead silence at first. It's like nothing big, fast void of nothingness. I don't know. What to, I don't know why I'm doing this. Um, but I just kept with it and I kept asking and I kept being willing to sit down and, and listen rather than just run out and numb it. Um, and before I knew it, it didn't take that long. I started hearing the whisper of I'm really overwhelmed. I'm, I feel really lonely. I'm incredibly sad. I'm really angry. It's like, Oh, well, we might want to do something with all that. <laughs> um, and, you know, to, without going too much further down that rabbit hole, I did, I did really begin to over those, you know, many years later. Um, and even then really listening to myself and what was happening and honoring what was happening for me in that emotional poverty that I found myself in and how I was being in the doing in my life and how I was being with money. Um, ultimately I ended up deciding to sell everything that I had all my properties. I sold them. That was a really big decision. Um, and the reason why I decided to do that, I mean, a financial advisor is like, wait a minute, you're doing what? Like, yep. And I didn't like the energy that I had acquired things with. And I didn't want to carry that energy with me into my future because I knew that everything about who and how I was being and how I was holding things needed to change. I needed to have a metamorphosis. I needed to let go. And so those many years following that, I did. I sold everything I owned. I surrendered massively. I moved to Santa Barbara, California. Um, I found you. (laughs) And uh, you didn't find me. Well, we found each other. Where did that all lead me? You know, ultimately, what did I do with all that? It's not this destination. I mean, destination is death. I mean, destination, death, destination. I was like, wow, that was really dark. Jennifer love, (laughs) but you know, I mean that, I mean that in an actual, like beautiful and the beautiful sense of that, that look at if we turn to nature, 
uh, and look at the cycle that nature teaches us, so much death is involved. Mm-hmm. So much, so much clearing is involved with fires, with floods, right? That's a clearing out um, through water or through fire. Um, and well, even you selling all your stuff is a death. I mean, you're kind of killing a sort of narrative or a, or sort of tangent of your story and saying, and I'm not, I'm actually, that's not what I want to do. And to put that to bed, you know, to put that, you know, kind of bury that, so to speak, honorably in some way, even against the, the, the advice of others around us, there's a, it's an intense it's an intense thing, you know. It's a lot of faith and and trust involved in in it was, going yeah. with that kind of a decision, and you know where that's going to lead you. Clearly, you had some confidence in yourself at at, at some basic level that you would be able to, you know, you know, kind of find your way, so to speak. But you wouldn't have known four or five years ago that you would be here now. Mm-hmm. But there right. has been a real death of self, not just, you know, through the selling of things, but a death of an idea of who I thought Mm. I was supposed to be. Yeah, that's big. And the defense systems that I had built up around that to protect me and uphold me in that, to be able to even keep it all together, quote unquote. Oh, I remember. Oh yeah, I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, but, you know, thinking, thinking back to the little three-year-old me, mm-hmm. I learned that early because I thought that's what I was supposed to do because I thought that was what was needed. And to me, that's like the downside of caring. Um, and that sweet one got really kind of mixed up in how to hold that. And so that translated over into my professional business life through how I was presenting myself, how I was being in the doing, I say, and that needed to die too. <laughs> Been a little gnarly. It, it was a little gnarly. Yeah. Sure. Well, I think, you know, death without actually dying, meaning you're not actually physically dying, probably feels kind of intense when you can feel that there's something that you've been kind of, you know, living with or living through. Uh, you know, as far as an identity or a, or a certain kind of like, you know, way of being a, a certain way you ascribe to yourself. And then all of a sudden you're saying, uh, I don't know about this. It can be a really liberating, but it also can be super gnarly in those, some of those moments when all of a sudden you're going, there hasn't been a replacement yet. You know, you're kind of a bit naked, a bit raw, maybe right. Pretty vulnerable. Mm. Yeah, for sure. But that's also like, such a beautiful place to be amazing and place it's an it's the best place and that's really where i've come you know i've come to that place which really ultimately i say it feels like home but you've started to recognize that that's the place or that's the that's the road you'd like to continue to uh to uh you know kind of stay exist on. yeah <laughs> exist and live in yeah in this, in the freedom of that, in the lightness of that. And it's been fantastic. And even putting down my own money narratives, you know, how that, how the 
not enoughness was expressing in I need to be this massive achiever to be valuable in the world. And therefore, I'm going to accumulate all these things and be this kind of person that I think I'm supposed to be exteriorly and and surrender and put it all down and literally release it in every way, shape and form. That's what I've been up to and come into a new narrative of who I am, really just remembering who I am because I've always been me, but just remembering who I am through the putting down, through the burning off of the releasing of the shit that just needed to go. Yeah. We're such great mirrors for each other. And, and that's part of finding, harvesting the gold in ourself, right. And then harvesting it, but then we've got to refine it. Uh, and, and then upon the refinement process, it's like, okay, well, how can I actually use this? Huh. How like, can what do this I want to use- make it into? Yeah. How can this be useful? It's like, okay, it's one thing to identify your goal, but then we got to clean it up and we got to refine it and we got to shine it up. And then we got to actually like, okay, how is this, how does this, how do I want to use my gold, my gifts and bring that out into the world? And, and that's become the real look for, for me. And the work that I do with clients is helping them do that for themselves as well um, so that we can find that personal narrative about wealth that makes up our beliefs and our thoughts and our feelings about money and how all of that affects our financial decisions and our financial behaviors. And then how we're valuing ourselves and how we're valuing other people even. Um, and you know, all of that is based in our history and what we're making it mean. And some of it's even inherited through our genes. And we, in the season, we unpack some of that, how we carry some of those through our genes and even in our habits or our karma or, you know, through our emotional wounds and trauma and how we've adopted all of that, or even how we've rebelled against it or how we've transcended beyond them, our strengths and our challenges with money. So that ultimately we create this unique programming, this unique way of being that is with our gold in the way that we're consciously choosing rather than unconsciously existing. Thanks so much for sharing your, your uh, part of your journey and your story with us right now. And uh, look forward to hearing some more. Thanks for coming and playing, sweetheart. Thanks for coming and playing. Awesome dude. The best ever person I've ever known in my life. <laughs> John, you've been such a, a rock. You've been such a friend. You've been a container for me to continue my own work, my own expansion so that I can be and do the work that I do with clients. And I just want to say thank you. You're welcome. Hmm. And John and I wrapped a good evening conversation with you. Thank you for joining us. And remember, we all have a narrative about money and unpacking what's in it so that you can get the greatest ROI in your life and your finances is ultimately the goal so that you can also experience a well-filled life that is both satisfying and joyful. This is what living wealthy is all about. Thank you for listening to The Nature of Money. 
a show of the Living Wealthy Institute. I'm your host, Jennifer Love. And will you take just a moment right now and give this show a stellar rating on the channel you're tuning into? And then share this episode with someone who could really benefit from its magic. I deeply appreciate you. And thank you to my co-producer, Tyler Lowe, to my writing shepherd, Tina Overberry, and to the musical magic and all-around soul support of my sweetheart, John Bagdasarian, and to the entire Living Wealthy team. The manifestation of this project is simply not possible without them. And to you, my listener, thank you. And I wish you a blessed week. 